Would you grab a Bible now with me and let's turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We're in a series called Excel Still More. We're calling it that because of what 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 says. Finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more. So let's pause here for a moment. That begins chapter four. All of chapter four and chapter five are specifically directed toward those of you who are followers of Jesus that you probably already are in some way pleasing the Lord. You are being instructed. If you're coming to the chapel, you're being instructed in the scriptures. His goal is that you who are pleasing the Lord would please the Lord more. That the word of God that instructs you would be changing you, transforming you in every area of your life. And we're praying that that's going to happen this morning. But it all begins with our approach to this book. So number one, super glad you're here. There's a lot of other things you could have been doing this morning. Second, I'm glad that God has revealed himself in this book. We have an unbelievable privilege to hear the truth, to be able to know what God says in every aspect of life. We're privileged. Let's not take it for granted. Let's make the most of our minutes together. And so to make the most of our minutes, let's make this declaration, take your Bible in whatever form it is, and let's declare this together. All right, say it with me. This is God's word, his heart revealed. I humbly declare his ways are higher than my ways and his thoughts are higher than my thoughts. I will not lean on my own understanding, but incline my heart now to receive his word so that I may excel still more in filling the earth with his glory by walking in his truth and loving all people as he has loved me. So Father, thank you for the privilege Thank you for the opportunity. Would you, by your grace and power at work in us, would you change us because of these moments together in the scripture? Would we have ears to hear from whatever's going on in our life right now? Would you speak to us by your spirit? I trust you with that and thank you in advance in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so last week we did the last half of chapter four, because in chapter, the last half of chapter four, he answers the question, how do we think and how do we respond to someone who was in Christ, they're a believer and they died? As believers in Jesus, how do we please God when our brothers and sisters in Christ die? And the answer is twofold. He says, when someone who is in Christ dies, we can please God even more, excel still more, first of all, in grieving. Sometimes we think, oh, we shouldn't grieve because we're Christians. We ought to believe that they're going to go to heaven and it's all good. Yes, we do believe that, but that doesn't mean we don't grieve. In fact, nothing is more sad than when someone dies and no one grieves. Because that represents that they missed what God intended us for, and that is relationship and community. So grieving is God-pleasing. 
It's most pleasing when we grieve as ones who believe, ones who have hope. So we excel in grieving and believing, and here's what we believe. Quick summary. We believe that Christ was raised from the dead. Believe that? If you believe that Christ has been raised from the dead and you have trusted in him, then you, when you die, you will be raised with him. And when you're raised with him, you're going to get a new body. And you're going to be with everyone who has ever trusted in Jesus forever with the Lord in a new heaven and a new earth. So we grieve, but man, we grieve with a hope that the future holds for us a great day and great joy. That's why we sang what we sang this morning. So that passage was about excelling when believers die. The passage we're going to look at this morning is this. He says, all of that's about the future. And there's something about the future that should not only inform us when someone dies, it ought to inform how we live. All right? So we're about to read the scriptures. I want you to understand what we're about to read. We're about to read how we ought to live in light of what the future holds. All right? So let's read together. Chapter 5, first 11 verses. Now, as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. Now, who's the you in that? The believers, not everybody, but you who have trusted in Jesus are sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night, but since we, believers, are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, meaning we've died, we will live together with him. And what are we to do with that? Encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. So, can I have your eyes for a moment? Let me, very, very simply, Jesus is, uh, Paul is saying here in this letter to the Thessalonian believers, you can, if you have trusted in Jesus, know for certain about the future, these three things. First, you can know for certain that Jesus is returning. He will return. You can know that for certain. It might seem like a long time. You might begin to doubt and question, is it really gonna happen? It's going to happen. You can absolutely be for sure. 100% guaranteed Christ will return. 
That ought to encourage us. That ought to build us up that Christ's return is certain. He is a promise keeper. To help us get the idea of the certainty of the return of Christ, he gives two images in verses 2 and 3. So jump back in your Bible to verse 2 and 3 of chapter 5, which we just read. Here's the certainty of what we can know. He says, you know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now, what's that image intended to communicate? Okay, if this is hard for you, how many of you have experienced a thief in the night? Any of you? Okay, a few of you? Uh, Can you testify? They didn't tell you they were coming. All right, if you would have known they were coming, you would have been ready for them. But you didn't know when it was going to happen. He's saying the day of the Lord's going to happen. In other words, you don't know when. Thieves do not text to you their ETA. But there's a second image. While they are saying peace and safety, those who say he's not returning, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child. What does every pregnant woman know is going to happen? The labor pains are coming, right? Straight out of Genesis 3, the labor pains are coming. How many, and I don't know this one specifically, but I have a wife who went through this six times. If she would have been given the option, hey, you can be pregnant and have a child, but skip the labor labor pains, sweet, that'd be awesome. But what is true about pregnancy and labor pains? You can't have one without the other, right? So what's he saying about the day of the Lord? It's as sure as labor pains for a pregnant woman, right? The day of the Lord is as sure as labor pains for a pregnant woman, but like a thief in the night. In other words, what? It's for certain going to happen. You just don't know what night. You don't know exactly when. But sometimes when we don't know when, we lose the reality that it's going to happen. So he says it's going to happen. So when we look at the future, you have a chart there in your message memo. When we look at the future from when Jesus ascended into heaven, here's what we know will happen. We don't know when it's going to happen. We have an idea. We think here at the chapel it's going to happen in this order. It might happen in a different order, but here's what we know will happen. First, four major events. These are the lines up here, and then four major time periods in the boxes. The first major time period after the ascension of Jesus was what we call the church age. We call it the church age because Jesus said, I'm going to build my church and the gates of Hades is not going to prevail against it. So what Jesus is doing now, this is the age in which we live now. We live in the church age. And it began at Pentecost when it was fulfilled what Jesus said, I'm going to go away, but it's going to be to your advantage because if I go away, then I'll send another like me, another one, the helper who will not only be with you, he will be in you. That's why it's to your advantage. 
when the Holy Spirit came, the church was born, and we are living in the church age, which will last how long? We don't know. Because the end... The end of the church age will be with the rapture, and that's going to happen how? Like a, like a thief in the night. It's for sure going to happen. We just don't know when. And we put the line, the arrow up and the arrow down because it's described as Christ coming in the clouds and those who are in Christ meeting him in the clouds. That was last week, First Thess 4. If you missed it, I encourage you to go back and listen. With the rapture, the church being taken off the planet, then there will be the seven-year tribulation described in Revelation, chapter 6 through 18. That will be hell on earth because the church, salt and light, will be removed. The seven-year tribulation will end, Revelation 19, with the seven the the second coming of christ so the tribulation will last seven years it will end with the second coming of christ where it will not be in the clouds but christ and his church returning with him to rule and reign on this current earth for a thousand years uh, revelation chapter 20 the millennium a thousand year reign of christ on this earth What will make the millennium radically different than our current day is that Satan, it says, will be locked up, not have rule on our earth as he does currently. So there will be the rule and reign of Christ for a thousand years. Then he'll be released. There will be the the battle of Gog and Magog upon which then those whose names are not written in the book of life will appear before the great white throne. And with the great white throne, the fourth major event in the future, eternity will be stepped into an either a new heaven on a new earth or an eternal condemnation in hell. Now, as we, as we look at that timeline, here's what I want to make sure you capture. First of all, there are other Bible-believing, Jesus-following folks who would lay it out in a different order. So that doesn't concern me. This, this is not truth on the level of salvation by grace through faith in Jesus alone. So... It might not unfold exactly like this, but we know this. This will happen as sure as what? Labor pains for a pregnant woman. When? Like a a thief in the night. That's his point. So now he makes... Now he makes an application. Because we know for sure, we just don't know when, he says, but you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief. So watch this. If you and I are in Christ, then even though it will come like a thief in the night, it shouldn't, we shouldn't experience it like a thief in the night. Even though we don't know when, we ought to be ready 
For all you, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. We ought to be certain of his return and ought to live in readiness because it shouldn't catch us like a thief in the night. And it won't catch us like a thief in the night because today I'm going to give you the day that Jesus is going to return. So you won't be, no, I'm not going to do that. Why am I not going to do that? Because I don't, I don't know. That's the whole point. Thieves don't text their ETA. So I, I don't know. Can I know something is going to happen, but not know when it's going to happen and still be ready? Can I? This was vague. This, I really wrestled with this. What's it mean for a believer to live in readiness for future things that we don't know when it's going to happen? And, it, and it, I believe it is just, how do I live in readiness? And then I thought, wow, this helps me. If Floridians, if anybody gets this, Floridians ought to get this. For this simple reason. What do we know as Floridians are going to happen even though we don't know when? Yeah, so you all know. If you're new to Florida, welcome. We're glad you're here. You just need to know you're going to have a hurricane. Are we going to have one this year? No, I said negatives probably. (laughs) Hey, maybe, but hopefully, hopefully not. I'm hoping for not, but maybe. So how do you live in readiness? <laughs> yeah, man, it's hard to live in readiness when you don't know it's going to happen because the longer it doesn't happen, the less ready you get. There was a period for about 10 years from 2006 to 2016 where we didn't experience hurricanes. Some of you will remember this. We got whacked in 2004 and 2005 and then 10 years, nothing. And so on a Sunday in 2016 in the fall, I said, hey, there's there's hurricane way out there called Matthew. Anybody getting ready for it? And nobody raised their hand. They were like, ah, nah, they don't ever hit us anymore. And a week later, we were like, man, what happened? (laughs) You see, you can actually go to sleep on stuff that you know is for sure going to happen. That's his whole point here. Don't go to sleep. He's going to use another image in a moment. We'll see. Don't go to sleep on this. Be ready. See, I don't know when a hurricane's going to take place, but if I build a house, what do I have to do? I have to build according to codes that have been established because hurricanes happen, for sure. We just don't know when, right? They have evacuation routes already established, even though we don't even know if a hurricane's going to happen in 2019 and not hit Florida. They've already, they have emergency plans in place. They just need to... Pull the trigger if you want. You simply say, execute the plans. See, there's readiness even though there isn't a awareness of when it's going to take place. Now, that helps me because, listen, folks, this is what you and I are called to do as Christ followers. We're called to know something's going to happen for sure. Christ is going to come back. We're going to give an account. How do we live in readiness even though we don't know when?
Well, what's the text say? So then let us not sleep. So never go to sleep. No, it's not literally never go to sleep. It's an idea because if you're asleep, you're not ready. If you knew for sure when the thief was coming, you wouldn't go to sleep. You'd be awake and ready. So don't let us sleep as others, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep, do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. Now, be clear. This is not a, a drinking passage. This is not a passage that's teaching about drunkenness, though the scripture does say, don't get drunk. It's used as an image here to show there's a readiness that requires you to be awake and sober. Because you and I can distinguish between a drunk person and a sober person and what their capabilities are, right? The drunk person doesn't think clearly. The drunk person doesn't process quickly. The drunk person doesn't respond, isn't able to respond appropriately. It's the whole deal with don't drink and drive because you don't have the capacity, your faculties aren't sharp and ready as they're needed to drive if you're drunk. It's the whole image right here. Except it's not a literal be drunk, it's a principle of be alert, be sober, be like people who are sober in light of the fact that there is a certain reality coming even though we don't know when. Since we are the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So we ought to live in readiness because we shouldn't be caught like a thief in the night. And that readiness is demonstrated in sobriety. Again, not literally, but a Figurative speech here of sobriety, of alertness, of attentiveness, of responsiveness. Be sober. And here's when, folks, I love what the scripture does for us. Because I could say, hey, y'all, Christ is coming back. Go be sober. And you'd be like, ah, okay. But you said that doesn't mean like literally, though. I am saying, the Bible says, don't be drunk, but that's not the point in this passage. You understand? What's it mean to be sober in light of Christ's return? Well, practically, how's that look to the rest of today and tomorrow and the rest of this week? Well, what are you going to do that reflects readiness, sobriety? He couldn't be more clear. Go back to verse 8. Since we're of the day, let us be sober having put on the breastplate of what? Faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. So Christ is coming back. Don't be caught like, we don't know when, but don't be caught like a thief in the night. Be ready. How do I be ready? Well, be sober. How do I be sober? Well, Sobriety is demonstrated. First, in faith. Live a life of faith. A 
sober that Christ is coming back is a life of faith. So let me clarify. Usually when we think, oh, faith, that means faith in Jesus for my salvation. And we are saved by grace through faith alone, but faith is not connected to our salvation in verse 8. What word is connected to our salvation in verse 8? Go ahead, it's there. Hope, the hope of our salvation. So when he is referencing live by faith, he is not referencing your salvation. That's the hope of your salvation in Christ's returning. I think he's talking about what Paul, the, the same writer says about himself in Galatians 2 when he says, I've been crucified with Christ and it's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That's his salvation experience. Because he is crucified with Christ, because Christ lives him, how now does he live? What's it say? <laughs> and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God. So what's that mean? I want to make this as practical as possible. Christ is returning. I'm not going to be called off guard. I'm going to be ready. How do you be ready? You be sober. Well, how do you be sober? You live by faith. Meaning, when Jesus explained his life in human flesh, he said this, I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. We're one. But even though we're one, the relationship is this, that I am dependent upon him and submitted to him. Jesus said, I'm in the Father, the Father's in me. The things that I say and do, I don't do on my own initiative. In other words, I am submitted to the Father. And the Father, watch, the Father abiding in me, the Father abiding in me does his works. So the way Jesus lived his life in the flesh was in oneness with the Father, submitted to the Father, so that the Father did the Father's works through the Son. Okay? And then Jesus said to his disciples, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. I'm passing the baton of the work of the Father that he was doing through me because we were one, I'm passing that to you. So that Jesus, right after declaring the explanation for his life, he turned to his disciples and he said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. In other words, there's oneness and dependence. If you will abide in me as I abide in you, you will bear much fruit. You will be doing the work of the Father. For apart from me, you can't do it. So I want to be man, as clear as I can, as practical as I can. Is Jesus coming back? Yes, as sure as labor pains for a pregnant woman. When? Thief in the night. But even though I don't know when, I can be ready by being sober, by living my life by faith, by living my life for the work of the Father so that whatever you do, whatever your occupation, in that occupation, you would be accomplishing in that context, in those relationships, the work of the Father. One with him, submitted to him, him doing his work through you. 
if you go to school, wherever you go to school, that you would be going to school, completing your classes, but in that context, doing the work of the Father. You tracking with me? Readiness is living by faith. Now, you've probably all seen a, a relay race. Where are, relays, where are relay races won and lost? In the passing of the baton. And when we recognize that Jesus has handed us the work of the Father, uh, the problem is, and this is why Paul is saying excel still more, too many of us have dropped the baton that Jesus has passed to us. Instead of giving ourselves to the work of the Father, we're making a name for ourselves. We're building our own kingdom. We're doing what we want to do, when we want to do it, how we want to do it, what makes sense to us. And as long as we are living for what we want to do, what we want, how we want to do it, that is not by faith. Readiness is, I've been sent to do the work of the Father by Jesus who did the work of the Father. So you want to live in readiness this week? Give yourself whatever you do, whatever your relationship, married, parents, grandparents, single, whatever your relationships for the work of the Father. That's readiness. But it's not just put it on the breastplate of faith. It's the breastplate of faith and love. Sobriety is demonstrated in a life of faith and a life of love. So that whatever you do tomorrow, it would be by faith expressed in love. It, it, always, it always comes down to love. If you were here when we did our series on love, love is the greatest, above all, beyond all, most excellent way to reveal that we are children of God. Why? Because God is love and God is where? Where? Folks, where? In, in us. In us. So that as we live, people would be experiencing the work of the Father who is love. To love one another. And to love our enemy. Why love our enemy? Because God loves Enemies and God is in us, but God demonstrates Romans five eight. God demonstrated His love for us, and that while we were yet enemies, sinners, Christ died for us. He gave us Himself. So here's what's here's what's weird about us, folks. We love people who love us, and Jesus goes, big whoop. Everybody does that. You don't need me to to love people who love you. Everybody does that. And then we get some people in our lives that are hard to love, like who are cruel to us, who have lied against us, who have said falsehood against us. 
and who have wronged us and wronged us in big ways. And we go, oh, I can't love them. That is the very reason for which Christ lives in you. So that you would do the work of the Father expressed in love. So I don't know who it is that's hard hard for you to love in your life. But trust me, that is the work of God in you. And that's why faith and love go together because you wouldn't do it apart from trusting in the authority of Jesus in your life. So faith and love. See, the reality that, that the end is near ought to always bring about love. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be of sound judgment, sober spirit for the purpose of prayer. Above all, above everything, because the end is near, keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Hey, people sin against us all the time. And we can keep track, live with all these broken relationships, or we can go, this is my opportunity to be like Jesus, to forgive as I've been forgiven to cover as I've been covered. I want to plead with you, if if there's a broken relationship or broken relationships in your life, let the reality of the end is near cause you to go, I need to resolve this. I need to get on with the work of the Father because, and you know this, you can't hold resentments and love them. You can't hold a grudge against a person and love them. You can't be unforgiving to them and love them. You're going to do one or the other. And so he says, the end is near, and it's certain, sure as labor pains for a pregnant woman. Love, by, in its greatest expression, forgiving because people are going to wrong you and you can live with a life full of broken relationships or you can go I'm going to love as I've been loved which means I'm going to forgive as I've been forgiven readiness is in faith readiness is in love and readiness of sobriety is demonstrated in hope and he says put it on as a helmet in other words the hope that Christ will return the hope of our salvation we put on as a helmet to protect our mind so that we think correctly. And here is our hope, verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath. Is the wrath of God a real thing? I really want you to ask yourself, is the wrath of God a real thing? Everything honestly in us wants to go, ah, No, it's just a threat. It's really not. It's manipulation. The wrath of God is is a real thing, meaning God is holy and he cannot. It's not that he, he just won't. He cannot in his holiness ignore sin. 
Sin must be punished. Sin must experience the wrath of God. But he says, God has not destined us for wrath, but obtaining salvation. The wrath that the scripture tells us for the future is described in Revelation chapter 20 as a lake of fire of a torment that never ends. As sure as heaven is going to be a real place, so is hell. That's not very pleasant to think about, but there really is a place of eternal wrath for those who have not trusted in Jesus. My my niece came to visit us last year. She's married with three kids. Her three-year-old little boy, Ty, was all boy into everything. And one afternoon, late afternoon, early evening, he, he grabbed a pepper off of our patio deck and bit into it. Now, we had bought little plants, pepper plants, that said green pepper on them. They weren't green peppers. They were ghost peppers. And he bit into this thing. And if you don't know anything about ghost peppers, horrible. You you could YouTube it and it'll freak you out. This little three-year-old boy bit into this ghost pepper and I've seen three-year-olds do a temper tantrum, and I have three, three-year-olds cry after a spanking, and I have never seen a three-year-old react like what he experienced when he had that ghost pepper. I mean, he, he just came unglued. He was flailing and screaming and crying and falling down and between gasps going, I want to die, I'm going to die. Seriously. Coming out of the thrills, I mean, he was in such pain. And, and you're watching, there's literally like nothing you can do. The closest thing we could do is we took those little bluebell cups and we gave it to him. And he was, ah, 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 seriously rubbing them on his tongue as much as he could. And he finished one. We gave him a second one. And he's like, ah, ah. It was hor- uh, horrible. Might look funny me doing it right now. It was Oh, it was just like cut you to the core, screaming and flailing. And I've never forgotten because it's the closest I've seen to someone just so tormented by something that they couldn't get away from no matter what they did. And it is just the smallest fraction of what will be forever and ever, 20 minutes, and then it started to wear off for him, forever and ever, the wrath of God for those who do not trust in Jesus. For sure. For sure. As sure as labor pains for a pregnant woman. And he says... God has not destined us for wrath. In other words, 
We don't have to experience wrath. We can, abstain, we can obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us. In other words, who took the wrath, who took all the ghost peppers of all the world upon himself. So that we could be saved. But as many as received him, Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, set free from his wrath. It's pretty stark. It's not an idle threat. This is not manipulative. This is truth straight from the scriptures. Friends, I want you to hear it. Jesus has died to pay the penalty for your sin, to take the wrath of God, that if you would believe in him, you would be saved. But equally true, if you reject him and you trust in yourself and you trust in your works and you think, nah, that's just for somebody else, there is an eternal torment that you'll never get away from, the wrath of God apart from Jesus. So I would plead with you. You can escape that wrath through Jesus. If you've never admitted that you deserve it. And the Bible says if, if you will confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And so if you would this morning, if you would confess with your mouth, Jesus, I do believe that you have taken my penalty. I believe that I deserve wrath, but you have taken it. And I receive that as the gift of all gifts. You can escape that wrath. No other way but through Jesus. No other way. I want to invite you to trust in Jesus to lay down your pride. Stop thinking you can save yourself. Stop thinking that other things, that you'll be good enough, that coming to church, you're cleaning up your life, you're not as bad as you used to be, that somehow you rub enough bluebell on your tongue, it's gonna go away. It's not. You cannot resolve your guilt. Only Jesus can take it for you and give you righteousness and life and hope. The men are going to come and pass the elements that remind us that the wrath of God went on Jesus in our place. And as they're passing them, if you have trusted in Jesus, uh, man, this is a great declaration. If you have not, I want to invite you. As these are being passed, I want to invite you there in the quietness of your seat put your faith in Jesus to be your savior as the men are passing the elements man is going to lead us in the, the unfolding of the gospel of our hope in Jesus if you've trusted in him I want to invite you to declare that that is your hope in Jesus alone
Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, where fears are still and striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I'll stand. In Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe. This gift of love and righteousness Scorned by the ones He came to save Till on that cross as Jesus died The wrath of God was satisfied For every sin on Him was laid Here in the death of Christ I live darkness slain then bursting forth in glorious day up from the grave he rose again and as he stands in victory since curses lost his grip on me for I am his and he is mine Ball with the precious blood of Christ. The love of God for us is in Christ. He said, This is the testimony that Jesus is eternal life. If you have the Son, you have life. If you don't have the Son, you don't have life can only receive him by faith. So I want to invite you. Maybe this would be a declaration you've made many times, but you want to just declare again, you're trusting in him. Nothing wrong with that. Maybe for the first time that you would declare, God, I admit that I'm a sinner. I admit that I would deserve your wrath, but I believe that Lord Jesus, you took my penalty. You have done for me what I could not do for myself. And I receive your salvation, your forgiveness. Eternal life is a gift. Thank you. In gratitude for his love, let's take the elements together. There is great promise and great joy to those who have trusted in Jesus. I want to invite you to stand with me, all of you, and let's declare together. 
here in North, uh, here in South, over in North. Let's declare together the hope that we have because of Jesus. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever plug me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand No guilt in life, no fear in death This is the power of Christ in me If you are a believer in Jesus, not just about Jesus, but you are, if you are a believer in Jesus, I can tell you absolutely for certain he's going to return for you. And until then, you ought to live in readiness, having received the baton from Jesus that you by faith would do the work of the Father in love with the hope or your wrath been taken out of the way, nailed to the cross. That's the guarantee that we have in Jesus. So let us, with great joy in the confidence that God is doing the work, let me declare this to you and then invite you to declare this to one another. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. And may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. To all together. Faithful is he who calls us and he also will bring it to pass. It's his work. He will do it. God bless.